Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. up everybody man welcome to this episode of the greatness machine what an awesome episode just interviewed matt campbell and matt is a journalist with bloomberg just wrote this amazing book i mean critically came playing book this book's getting tons of play called dead in the water a true story of hijacking murder and a global maritime conspiracy had just an awesome conversation learned about his background how he got into journalism and this guy is a complete stud had some cool, cool banter though. We talked about the world of journalism and journalistic integrity. Really got to dig into that as well as the book. Um, with that said, stay tuned. Enjoy the episode. This is a great one, guys. Welcome to today's episode of the Greatness Machine. I'm the, I'm your host Darius Marshazi, and boy, do we have a special guest. My friend Matt Campbell is in the house. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so good to have you here. So Matt's joining us from Singapore. I'm in Texas, so I'm I'm at the end of my day. He's in the beginning of his, but I'm super excited to have you here. Um, for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness despite the odds. Um, and you know, Matt's here today to talk about his book, Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and global maritime conspiracy. So Matt, welcome to the show. Really, really pumped to have you here. Thanks so much. Um, so, you know, here at the greatness machine, we really love origin stories and, you know, uh, before we do that though, I, I do want to kind of give some of your formal bio. So, uh, not only did Matt write his book, he's also the award-winning reporter and editor for Bloomberg business, uh, week magazine. Uh, he's reported in more than 25 countries, won tons of awards and, you know, really like a prestigious journalist, you know, like you're out there doing a lot of journalism in the world. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of hear, like, how did you get your start? Like, what's the origin story around you getting into this world of journalism, especially at this level? Well, Darius, I, I the simple answer is I never wanted to do anything else. Uh, you know, I, I 
say to people that I've, I've never had a real job, uh, which is sort of a joke, but um, also I feel like I haven't, you know, I don't know what people who, who have uh, sort of jobs that aren't being a journalist do all day. I genuinely have no idea um, because this is all I've ever done. So I not even sure I remember uh, when I knew I wanted to be in this business, but from a pretty early age, you know, 14, 15, I was working for any newspaper or magazine that would take me, you know, working for the high school newspaper, editing the high school newspaper, of course. Uh, but it, pretty quickly, my focus shifted to uh, getting paid to do it as much as possible. So uh, submitting freelance pieces, I, I was a reviewed bars at one point as a teenager, which was probably not the most legal thing. <laughs> um, you know, so it built up clips from various publications, you know, large and small. Then uh, after graduating from college, uh, started trying to get a real job. And, you know, ultimately uh, landed at Bloomberg, uh, initially in London, uh, then in Paris and back in London uh, and in Asia for the last several years. And I went through kind of various beats, uh, various teams uh, covering, you know, things that are pretty core to the operation of a place like Bloomberg, which is which is led by business and finance coverage. So I covered M&A and investment banking for a while. Um, and ultimately settled on a kind of full-time investigative and features role, uh, which is what I do now. And so, um, obviously you've kind of came up, as you mentioned, like, like, did you, did you say that you were reviewing bars? Was that the original, uh, gig? I was, yeah. <laughs> when I was about, when I was about 15, this was in Canada. So things are a little looser. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah totally. Loose. They are in the States. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're Puritans here. Like we don't, we don't let people drink underage people everyone drinks underage we just don't let them um so exactly <laughs> so um so it looks like you 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 really got some great higher education went to yale and oxford uh were you uh, like a english major or did you study writing what, what, what did you what was kind of your area of expertise there uh officially i did political science uh both places although what i really did was major in rowing uh so i was an athletic recruit as oh. their, which is, I believe the technical term. Uh, and basically what that meant is that, uh, back when you applied on paper, uh, which I know is hard for people to imagine, but you did use to have to send in a paper application, True. uh, every stamp, every page of your application had a stamp on it that said YA, uh, Yale athletics. And that essentially meant that you had been, uh, sort of koshered by a sports team. Uh, and, and, you know, that, uh, made it a lot easier to get in, let's just say. And I probably would not have gotten in without uh, being a pretty decent rower. And so I spent uh, four years, my four years at Yale, uh, yeah, mostly in a boat, uh, spending the bare, the bare minimum of time on academics, actually. Uh, but, you know, I would argue I probably learned more, uh, more from that athletic commitment than I would have from anything else I could have done uh, because, you know, you can always learn content, but what a very intense team sport teaches you. And, and, you know, certainly in the Ivy league growing is a really intense team sport, you know, it's yeah. you do it from sort of September through June every year. Uh, what you learn about hard work and discipline and teamwork is a hell of a lot more valuable than anything I was getting 
you know, in the classroom. Yeah, no, the, the, and, and, and I, it's funny when people say it's like easier to get in with athletics. I got in, I, I was a D- division one wrestler in college. So I got into my college and I, you know, I was a person that had like high SAT scores, but like didn't really try that hard on my grades, but I was a great wrestler. And I'm like, you know, how hard it is to be a great at a sport and like get decent grades. It's really, I mean, you go try to do that. Right. It's like, it's like it, the, the level. And, and to your point, like, like the lessons learned in sports, like, like, I'll use the example of what you just said. Hey, I don't know about most of our listeners, but I don't think I want to go out in the water in the middle of January in Connecticut um, to go rowing. <laughs> but you guys did, right? So it's like, I mean, were you guys training out out, out in, in the water then as well? Yeah. So in pre, if possible, yes. Um, it, basically, the way it would work is you'd be in the water September, October, until about mid-November, it would get too cold in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would go into the gym, essentially, for sort of December, Jan. And then by the end of February, beginning of March, you know, it's just about doable to go back into the river. Uh, the Housatonic River is, it was the one we were, we were on. Oh, um, but it's so cold. Oh, my God. Like, like February, March is just you know, rowing, you're, you're going back and forth on these slides in the boat, right? Because your seat goes back and forth as you pull. And there would be days when in the two or three seconds between each stroke, the uh, water that splashed into the slides would be freezing up and you could hear it crunching. Oh, my so gosh. Uh, yeah, it was brutal. We would go to, we would go to Florida for 10 days every March, uh, just on a sort of kickstart spring training. Uh, and that was a great relief, you know, compared to uh, trying to do it in New England, which is just brutal. So yeah, you you learn a lot about um, suffering, did, for lack of a better term. Yeah, no. Did, did you ever um, row against the Winklevoss twins because they were at your rival of Harvard? Yeah, yeah, they were my. Uh, they were not. We were not quite contemporaries, and I'm not sure we would have ever been in the same race because they would have been a couple years older. Right. But we. Um, very if we didn't overlap we very nearly overlap yeah i, I saw that i'm like i'm like i'm pretty sure the winklevoss twins were, were uh, rowers out of harvard so that, that's interesting that's a, that's a tough sport man so that's that's cool and so um that segued into you know graduate school in the uk at oxford study political science but all the while were you like oh, i want to do business reporting or political reporting like what was kind of your focal point then or interest then yeah, journalism was the goal all along. I mean, I had very brief moments where I was thinking, oh, maybe I should apply to law school. Uh, or, you know, when I was at Oxford, which is a very kind of intense academic environment, uh, I was thinking, well, maybe I should think about doing a PhD because I really enjoyed doing graduate work. But no, I mean, not for more than about a day did I ever consider doing anything but this so as soon as i was out i was yeah looking for jobs looking for ways to make a living as a journalist which is not impossible but nor is it super obvious what so i i mean what do you think for like folks out there that want to get into the field of journalism and i have some friends that have done it so this is more of a rhetorical question but for audience members that don't really know how to do that but are saying oh i'd love to go and become a journalist and do what matt's doing what is kind of the the what would be like your biggest piece of advice for someone wanting to do that? 
uh, just to write or or whatever your medium is, you know, if your medium is podcasts or video, do that. Uh, just find ways to do it and and don't get hung up on on who you're doing it for or the precise content. You know, I think most of us who've gotten into the biz and stayed in the biz did a lot of work in our early years that, you know, we probably wouldn't put at the top of our highlight reel now. Uh, but you do it because you gain experience. And, you know, so one thing that I, I've always been a little bit skeptical of is journalism school. Uh, mm. Absolutely nothing against people who do it. And, and I know a lot of phenomenal reporters and editors who went to places like Columbia Journalism School. And, sure. and there's no question you learn a lot. Um, but those are skills you can also learn on the job and ideally get someone to pay you to learn uh, rather than paying Columbia. Uh, I don't know, it's probably 60 or 70K at this point. Sure. So, yeah, work freelance, uh, find places that will take your stuff. In the old days, that used to be certainly in the U.S., like going to a regional paper, you know, you'd want to go work for the Denver Post or, or the Miami Herald. You know, you don't start at the New York Times, basically. Um, that still exists, but but now it's probably smaller websites, uh, smaller uh, podcasting platforms. You know, there is huge demand out there. It's probably not terribly lucrative, but if you build up a file of clips, you can then use that to, to get in the door at the bigger outlook. And so... Um... First of all, thank you for that. I, I, I'm always, I, I love kind of understanding how people got to where they got to because I think that um, a lot of times people just kind of assume like, oh, they got lucky and, you know, oh, you know, I could never do that. And and the, the common thread, you know, I've probably interviewed now over 200 people. The common thread for people that have achieved in my book is they just do the hard work. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, they just go out and they, they get it done. And, and when it's hard, they, they lean in and um, and so that this sounds like more of that, right? Like doing the work, it gets you to where you want to get to. Um, you know, with, with that in mind, you know, how did you, I mean, I guess pivot from business and M&A journalism, you know, and, and obviously you're, you're working in big outlets in the UK um, to this investigative journalism work, because that seems like that's really where the book came out of, as well as some of, some of your more um, popular, you know, material that, 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 that's really gotten attention. It was kind of a natural segue, which I'm not sure I would have expected at the time, but, but that is what ended up happening. Um, so yeah, I was covering very, I had a very financy job, you know, covering uh, big transactions and, and money basically. Um, but some of those are really big stories. And when things are really big stories, you can dig into them more deeply. So there were a few in particular where, you know, something had happened, something financial essentially had happened, but there was enough in it and enough drama and enough politics, you know, because of course, when you're talking about really big money, particularly in Europe, which is where I was spending my time, um, you know, governments often get involved. There, there was enough other material in these stories to go really deep on them. Uh, and to do, you know, three or four or 5,000 word pieces on uh, some financial story that, that really get into the characters and stakes. Uh, and so once you do a few of those, uh, you start to get noticed, particularly if you're in a, a big media organization and start to get asked to pitch bigger and more ambitious stories. Uh, so that's what I did. Um, 
you know, so Bloomberg is this vast empire, uh, one one province of which is Business Week, the magazine, which is the most uh, consumer facing product. Basically, it's it's kind of the, designed to have the the widest kind of general interest audience. So I started pitching more and more to the magazine. They took most of those pitches, or or more of those pitches anyway, and. Um, once you get pitches approved, you know, obstacles kind of fell away to, to breaking away from my day job. So I would be spending more and more time over the years not doing my day job and instead writing for the magazine. Uh, and then ultimately, there was sort of a, a consensus between me and the bosses that it just made sense for me to not have a day job uh, and, and to spend all my time on, on the other stuff. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and Supply & Demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million-dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through, but then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Shazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. And let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. From canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now. And let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear, uses directed.
And so, um, having kind of moved into that world, you know, and, and, and obviously, um, you have this big story that, that the book's based on, but before you had got kind of decided to write the book on, on the big story, what, was there any like pivotal moments for you as a journalist or any, uh, investigative reporting segments that, that were really like, kind of like your feather in your cap you're like, Whoa, man, I'm, I've made it like, like this is the, I'm in the big time now. Like this is, this is where I get to really go and work on the stuff I want to work on. Actually the, the project through which I met my co-author Kitchell, uh, I, I think remains one of the most important things I've ever done. Um, and so, so the background is I was, uh, covering M and A and investment banking, um, Kit at the time was a court reporter. He was at the high court in London every day, you know, going from courtroom to courtroom uh, in this kind of old school way that doesn't really exist much anymore uh, to have someone permanently at a courthouse. And I'd been reading, you know, looking around for a big story and noticed that there was this trial going on in London between um, Goldman Sachs, you've probably heard of them, uh, and... um, and the government of Libya, which you may also have heard of. Uh, and basically what had happened was Goldman in this period toward the end of the Gaddafi regime, when the US and the UK really wanted Libya to open up and were essentially trying to bribe the Libyans, you know, by saying, uh, you know, look at all these wonderful things you can do if you get rid of your weapons of mass destruction, you too can do business with Goldman Sachs. Yay. Um, <laughs> And so Goldman, you know, and other, and they weren't alone. There were other banks too. We're all like flooding into Tripoli, uh, trying to get a piece of the Libyan government's huge assets from uh, oil, of course. Interesting. And uh, Goldman, you know, being no fools, uh, were more aggressive than anybody in trying to get this business. And they ended up in a really complicated series of uh, financial relationships with uh, what was called the Libyan Investment Authority, which was Qaddafi's uh, sovereign wealth fund. Um, and as we said in the uh, the deck, the, the subheading of the story, uh, somebody was going to make a killing. Uh, and basically, it, it all fell apart. It didn't end well. Uh, it sort of culminated with the the like main Goldman banker who was running this thing, like having to be evacuated from Tripoli, fearing for his life, uh, turned into this massive lawsuit in London, which went on for years and years and had all this wild drama in it so kit and i who barely knew each other at the time decided wow there's a big story in this uh which we spent i think about six months working on ultimately published it on the cover of business week in late 2016. and that got a level of attention that i'd never experienced before and that and that kind of blasted us both into a a different part of the business. I would say. What so so what what year did this story take place um, in, in Libya with the, with the Goldman and in the Libyan government? Uh, it was like late two thousands. So Gaddafi, you know, so so this is like really the end of the Gaddafi regime. So Gaddafi is is deposed. Um, you know, I think the well, the Arab Spring starts in twenty ten. Gaddafi was gone about I think mid twenty ten. So it was right right at the end two thousand seven two thousand eight. And so in, in like, I guess one of my questions is in doing investigative reporting and digging into these stories, obviously 
this is, you know, a few years after the event. Was there any, did you get any pushback from people in Libya as you were digging or from even people at Goldman because they wanted to keep things kind of like buried or like what, what, what was your experience with those two different groups? Um, look, that was a tricky story. Uh, you know, I mean, all any, any story worth doing is probably tricky, but that was greatly aided by the fact that it was in court. And, you know, anything that hits a courtroom is good because uh, courtrooms generate, uh, first of all, you know, I, I'm not sure everyone realizes this, but but you can walk into any courtroom, certainly in the Western world. I mean, there is, we have the principle, what's called the principle of open justice, which means uh, if a trial is going on, there are no locks on the doors. You know, you can just, you can just turn up. And actually I was in London last week and, and just walked into a, a Libya related hearing at, at the one of the commercial courthouses and, and you just open the door and walk in and everyone sort of flips around, you know, <laughs> it's like, who the hell are you? But they can't stop you. Uh, so that's nice. Uh, it also litigation generates lots of documents, right? Uh, which, you know, the U S is the very best place of all for this because it all goes on what's called PACER, uh, for federal trials. You know, every piece of paper essentially is, is available on PACER. You just need a login, which is, free to get or very close to free. Um, the UK is a little trickier. You have to get people involved with a case to give you the documents, although they are nominally public, so they're not supposed to say no. It's just as another step. Uh, and so you can get things like emails, for example. So, so in the case of this one, uh, there were tons and tons of emails that had been disclosed for the trial, which Kit and I got access to. So you know, if you have thousands of email messages that someone sent over the course of a couple of years, uh, you can really reconstruct quite a lot about whatever it was they were involved in. Uh, and we did that. We also spoke to lots of the people who were involved, who were who were largely still around, um, you know, whether in the Middle East or, or in London or elsewhere. Uh, Goldman, I don't think they tried. They certainly tried to influence the story, which, as you would expect, um, but they didn't try to stop us. I think they knew this was a big deal. Uh, it was playing out very much in public. Um, and so there was no way we weren't going to write about it. I'm sure they weren't thrilled with the final product, but um, at, at no point did they attempt to shut it down. What? Um, so I know, obviously, without giving away the book, like, like, was there anything that, like, in the process of going through, and maybe this is more of a, a macro question when you're doing investigative journalism, but in this story in particular, maybe we look at it both ways. Was there anything that just blew your mind where you're like, like that really cracked the story open for you? So in the case of the book, uh, yeah, there was a one document in particular. I remember that. And this is actually the moment when I decided it was a book. So, so the book is about a uh, extremely audacious insurance fraud uh and the murder of the guy who got in the way uh, basically it's it's a, a nearly 200 million dollar attempted fraud on the lloyds of london insurance market wow uh someone who was involved in investigating the kind of central incident david mockett who was a a british uh, essentially a claims adjuster you know a, a sort of they, they call it a, a maritime surveyor who did marine accidents you know ships sinking that kind of thing um, began to have suspicions about the central event and was murdered. He was killed by a car bomb in 2011. 
before those uh, before he could he could make those suspicions more solid. Um, and so that's what Kit and I, my my co-author, wrote about uh, first in a in a long magazine article which ran in 2017, and then we kept in touch with some of our sources. We kept an eye on the story. And there was some ongoing litigation uh, in the UK connected to this case. And at one point, a whistleblower showed up. Uh, and and the, the story of exactly how he turned, how he came to be uh, telling everyone what he knew is super complicated and, and we can get into, but it's also, you know, there's several chapters of the book that deal with it. And he gave a statement to British police, which ultimately was disclosed in court. It was like a 75 page document. And when Kit and I read this, we just thought, holy shit, this is the whole scam. This is it. You know, basically, basically he just laid it out top to bottom in a way that uh, no one else had before. And as soon as we saw that, you know, I remember reading it in my office here in Singapore, just like my jaw on the floor. And we were like, that's it. That's, that's the book. That's a book, certainly. Uh, so then we, we got to, we got to working on pitching a book, um, and ultimately wrote it. Is this, is this the first book you've written or is, have you written? This is my first book. Yeah. First, first of, first of many, I hope. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, that's awesome. First of all, so congratulations. And so what was your, uh, what would you say was your favorite part about writing this book? I really loved the the reporting process. Um, so I've, uh, I, I've always struggled with stories that are kind of big and amorphous. Like I've never been able to take like a big theme and write something smart about it, like zooming in on, on aspects of it. Like I could never write a book about like pandemics, you know, or animals or, you know, there are all these wonderful books out there that kind of, uh, cover a lot of territory. I've never been good at that, you know, not as a journalist and, and I don't think as an author. Um, what I've always preferred are stories that kind of have boundaries where you're looking into one person, one event, uh, one place, one scandal, and just trying to learn absolutely everything about whatever is in that sandbox. Uh, so in this case, you know, we have this central event, uh, this huge fraud, this murder, uh, the trials, there, were, there ended up being a couple of trials uh, relating to it. And, you know, Kit, my co-author and I just set out to talk to everyone, learn everything, get every document, you know, turn every page, as, as Robert Caro, the great American historian, likes to say. Um, and I really enjoyed trying to know everything about this, you know, admittedly limited and narrow subject, but, but that actually felt doable, you know, that you can uh, really put together a reporting plan and put together research that allows you to know everything that happened, you know, every minute, uh, every minute of this story, you know, we all, we ultimately had a timeline of all the relevant events that I think, I think it spanned about 50 years, but, but certainly in the intense parts of it, it was minute by minute or hour by hour wow. on certain crucial days. And, and to feel like we really knew what had happened. I thought that was really cool. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so, um, and looking back at the process and, you know, digging into a story like this, was there, was there anything that, you know, I guess, obviously you have your favorite moments, which is what we just talked about, but was there anything that where you're like, man, like that really went sideways on us in the process of writing this book or, or something that surprised you or anything, anyone that got in the way of making this the book that you, that you had to overcome? you know, in the process. Cause again, an investigative journalism, I, 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 my, my assumption is, is that you're out there turning over rocks that people may or may not w- want turned over to tell a story and you're just looking for the truth. But, you know, I, I, at least my perception of this is that can get a little hairy if you're telling a story that people don't want told. Yeah. There's no question. There are lots of people who didn't want this particular story told and, and still don't. Um, our toughest experiences uh, were with reporting in the Middle East. Uh, and keep in mind, this is largely during COVID. So uh, traveling was going to be a huge challenge. So we were trying to do this all on the phone. Uh, some of the key events of the book unfolded in Yemen, which is a pretty tough place to operate at the best of times, uh, has had a really horrific civil war over the last decade that has first of all, just killed a lot of people. Uh, and so, you know, one consequence of that is that many of the people we wanted to speak to were either not around or or in fear of their lives for one reason or another. Um, you know, and also this particular story deals with an unsolved murder. It deals with the complicity of some very powerful people uh, in Yemen and elsewhere uh, in that murder uh, and in the underlying fraud that we talk about. So as you can imagine, uh, there's some reluctance uh, from some people to to get a call from some nosy reporters. And that was really frustrating that, you know, we felt like certainly with the Yemen part of the reporting, it was very, very hard to get anywhere. And eventually we pieced some things together, you know, with the help of some very bright researchers who we hired and, and you know, helped us navigate the language and the cultural sensitivities there were enough documents we were able to put together some of the key events. Uh, but that was, that was the most challenging part of reporting the book, I think by far. Got it. And, and, you know, speaking of that, you know, you're, you're based in Singapore. A lot of the work you've done is in the UK. You're originally from Canada, North America. Is that correct? That's right. And, and so one, one, one question I ask is, you know, I, I live in the United States and I'd love to hear your take on this. You know, I think that there's a lot of, I don't want to say noise out there, but there's a lot of, uh, maybe I'm going to say noise. There's, I, I see that there's a lot of noise around the way things are being reported now, right? And you have all these different sources. And the, I, I feel like the state of journalism has never been more important and has never been more challenged than it is today. So you coming from it, from the perspective of being a writer in this environment, like what are your thoughts on I guess maybe how how what's the perception around it from the standpoint of doing good journalism and then also around like what is 
what do people listen to or how do they, how do you approach this environment if you're receiving information coming from journalists today? Because I think that there's kind of a mistrust in journalism right now. And I would just love to hear how you as journalists think of that both internationally and then just in general. Well, I think there are, I think you have to separate this into two buckets, the question of, of mistrust and, and, whether we, we journalists deserve trust. Um, it has been very convenient and very tempting for a lot of powerful people to sow that distrust. You know, there are, uh, you know, certainly for Donald Trump uh, to take a really prominent example, you know, claiming that it was all fake news, that it was all made up, uh, that journalists all had an ax to grind was very convenient for him because it allowed him to tell his supporters, no, no, all this stuff you're reading or, or that you're hearing, don't take it seriously. They just have an agenda. Well, you know what? It was all true. I mean, this is what's, this is what's crazy about it is that um, despite these claims that, oh, the journalists are all, you know, they're all crooked. They're all, um, uh, they, they all have agendas. First of all, you know, I think I'm right in saying, no, we're not. And second of all, what we report, uh, is almost always true. Uh, you know, so something that, a funny thing that happens to a lot of investigative reporters, uh, particularly when you deal with money and finance, is you encounter people who think you must have some money in it somehow. Mm. Uh, you know, who are like, oh, well, you must be shorting the stock, you know, or you must be, someone must be paying you to do this. And <laughs> um, anyone believing that that's possible is like, betrays a real misunderstanding of how journalism, particularly journalism in the kind of American tradition mm -hmm. works. Uh, it's just nobody in the business who I know would even contemplate, you know, having a financial stake in their reporting. It's just not how we're wired. Um, but there is that perception out there that, you know, well, you must be on the take somehow. And, and you know, I can assure you that we're not, you know, that said, Obviously, there have been mistakes over the years. You know, the, the big one of my kind of uh, formative years, this is a long time ago now, was the Iraq War, uh, when, you know, a lot of the American media were kind of cheerleading for this conflict, you know, in a way that it turned out uh, crossed some ethical and journalistic lines. And that's bad. And, and you know, I think the reckoning over that and, and the sort of loss of trust over that was probably deserved. Uh, you know, another thing was, there's no question that during the Trump years, uh, there was a kind of derangement uh, in some quarters of the media, you know, where people got really obsessed with the idea of taking down Trump and, and some of what's come out is not pretty. Um, but that said, I think, look, on the whole, uh, the media does a good job. You know, the American media does a good job. There are a number of fantastic uh, media outlets out there. You know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, the FT, the Economist, Bloomberg. Um, there are a lot of really, really solid journalistic outlets out there doing great work all over the world every day. And that work is not blogging. It's not, uh, you know, writing opinion columns. It is real reporting. What do you, and what do you think, um, do you think that, that, I guess, I mean, obviously you, you, and this is your, this is your profession, right? So I appreciate where you're coming from and like, you're like, look, I'm in it. I'm, I see it. I know it. And, and there's no perfect 
outcome here. Obviously, there's things that have sowed those seeds of distrust. What do you think that the field of journalism needs to do at this point to continue to maybe either rebuild the, tr- the, the trust that's been lost? Because if we're talking about trust, trust is something that takes time to rebuild. Or what do you, what, how do you see it happening? And do you think that it's, this is just an American or a North American issue? Or do you think this is a worldwide issue? I think it's probably global to some extent. Now, obviously, there are different flavors in different countries, but but I think the uh, distrust in the media seems to be a a global or at least a pan Western phenomenon. You know, like I know France pretty well, and and we, there are versions of this in France. The UK has versions of this. Asia has versions of this. Um, I think there are a few ways to deal with it. Um, one may be to kind of show our work a little bit better. So I've noticed, you may have noticed if you, if you read the New York Times lately, they've started putting these little blurbs on the top of stories explaining how they were reported, mm. uh, which I, I was kind of interested by because um, you could argue one interpretation of, of like our job is to say, well, it's not our job to tell people how it was reported. It's our job to deliver the product. Right. And, you know, we're not we don't need to kind of show the the inner workings. But I think the New York Times, who probably for good reason, have to think harder about winning and keeping trust um, than others do, uh, just because they are so prominent, you know, and, and they are so often in the political crosshairs. And, and you know, if, if Donald Trump is ranting about somebody, it's probably going to be the New York Times. So so they have, you know, they've, they've had reason to engage with these issues more closely than others. Um, I can see how they got to this idea, you know, say we need to explain to people just how much work goes into a big story. Uh, and so they are, um, you know, I think we can also demystify certain things. Um, uh, you know, one that one example that, that always comes to mind is the idea of anonymous sources, um, which is a terrible term. You know, what it should, the term that we should use is on is unidentified sources, um, because I think there's this perception out there that an anonymous source means that we don't know who it is. Mm. Uh, you know, the, where, no, what we mean is we want them to be anonymous to the reader right. uh, and anonymous to the people who might want to hurt them <laughs> for what they tell us. Right. Of course we know who they are. We always know who they are. We, you know, in many cases, uh, spend a lot of time debating an anonymous source's motivation, you know, and how they know what they know and whether they can be trusted. Uh, and, you know, helping people understand some of those processes and just how much, uh, really conscientious thinking goes into what ends up on the page. I think that could help. Um, but obviously, you know, we're up against, uh, bigger forces and, and if, uh, some demagogic politician wants to tell his or her supporters, you know, not to trust the media, there's only so much you can do about that. Yeah. I love that, man. I appreciate, I really appreciate your feedback on that. Cause it's just something that I've, I've thought about a lot where I find myself looking at whenever I'm, I'm I try to go to different media outlets that I know have, you know, left or right leaning bias and to, to read the same story just cause I, I want to see it as, are they, are they cherry picking information? Are they leaving data out because it like doesn't suit their, you know, their, the bias of the reporting and, and 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 it's interesting to watch folks and i consider myself a pretty middle of the road person really taking information from these echo chambers and it's like 
well, yeah, like, of course you all think that because you're not looking at, you're just looking at it from one lens. So it's, it's really interesting to hear it from someone that's out there creating, creating this work, how, and these are your peers. And, and so I appreciate your feedback on that. Um, I want to kind of, one sh- thing I would, Oh yeah, please oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to add one thing on that. You know, one thing that I think is, um, a problem and which we need to watch out for because it is diminishing trust in the media outside the U S is there has been a phenomenon of American publications recently. And, and you know who you are. I won't, I won't name them. Um, sort of trying to recruit foreign stories into like U S culture wars Hmm. uh, of, of sort of applying a like Trump versus the rest lens onto foreign stories or, or trying to impose uh, kind of American debates about things like race onto other countries where the context is very different. And I know certainly X us when people read those stories, you know, in Asia or, or in Africa or in Europe, they're just like, what? It, like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. But, but it makes sense in kind of an American culture war and, and an American domestic political uh, framework. What would, what would be, and I what, do think, what, what might be an example of that? Like, just cause I'm not clear um, on what you mean. So I'll give you one that was, um, you know, close to my heart. Uh, so when we had these trucker protests in Canada, yeah, the, um, the trucker and, and these blockades yeah. in Ottawa, right. It was, you know, there was all this kind of breathless coverage in the American press. Like it's Trumpism comes to Canada and this is exactly like the Capitol riot, you know? Oh. No, it's not like these are specific. There were, you know, that those, that event had a very specific context. The political context was totally different. Um, the uh, people involved were totally different. Like this had very little to do with anything uh, in any other country. This was a Canadian story. Um, but there was this urge to kind of fit it into this pre-existing model of American politics. And so, you know, what I sometimes say to people is it's like, it's like foreign countries aren't allowed to have their own politics anymore. Mm. You know, everything has to be sort of a battle in the U S political war. Um, and often and more than, more than often, almost always, that's just not the case. You know, similarly, um, Boris Johnson, you know, who is a, a very, uh, unappealing character in many ways was constantly being compared to Trump. He's right. nothing like Donald Trump. Like it's just as like, and, and the issues in Britain are very, very different from those in the U S. Uh, but there was this urge to fit him into that, uh, that political framework. Interesting. Yeah. It's, and, and this was done. I mean, they did it down in, in Mexico when they elected their new president and it happened in Brazil yeah. too. And it's like, Oh, the Donald Trump of Brazil, you know? And, and, and yeah, so, yeah, Bolsonaro. Exactly. To, right. Yeah, someone said, so I heard, I heard on a, on a prominent podcast, someone say, yeah, Bolsonaro is just like Trump and Lula's just like Joe Biden. Like, <laughs> Lula's a militant, you know, a militant socialist, uh, union guy, union activist, yeah. you know, who I think was in jail or certainly everyone around him was in jail you know, during the junta in Brazil, but he is nothing like Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, but there, but there is this desire to, to fit everything in. They're like, we just need to spoon feed people information in a way that, that forces them to understand it the way we want them to understand it. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I think that there's that, that chips away at, at the integrity of, of it, which is like, no, they're the, 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 one is not the other to your point. So it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's like the Americanification of, or American, 
I'm making up a word right now of, of, you know, it's happened on TV, right? So we've done it with entertainment. Now here it's happening journalistically. So I think, I think that there's an opportunity there, which is that we need to not try to, to paint everything by one color and say like, this is that to your point. Cause I think that over time, we're kind of seeing this in the midterm elections here. People are getting tired of it. Right. And, 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 and people, yeah. and, and I, I'm hopeful that people are tired of the bullshit and they're, and they're wanting to, you know, move on to being productive. Right. And these culture wars to your point that it's not productive, you know, it doesn't, this doesn't create a better world for us to live in. So it's, it's good to hear that at least from a journalistic integrity standpoint, that stuff you're saying, I think, and the work that you're doing um, is aligns with the most important thing that I think the, the foundation of journalism stands for, which is, telling the truth, right? Like not, not having an agenda, not having, not hiding, you know, things that need to be told. So I love, I love that that's, that that's happening. Um, I, I want to pivot. Um, cause I know we're kind of coming near the end of the show, but, um, so what's next for you? I mean, you have the book it came out a few months ago. It's obviously kicking ass and taking names. Um, what, what's, what's next on the horizon? for for you and or anyone else you're working with on, on your next projects? Well, the most immediate thing that's next for me is to do more of my, of what is now my, of what is my day job, which is to do, you know, big impactful investigative pieces for Bloomberg. And, and I have a few of those coming up. Uh, I'm also working on my next book, uh, which I can't talk about yet, but uh, except to say it, it is also about uh, fraud and corruption uh, in faraway places that, that also reaches back to New York, uh, actually in, in the case of this story in London. And, and that's what I look for, you know, given I've spent most of my career, you know, outside of North America. Uh, but I look for stories in kind of remote places that link back to right to the central hubs of the West. So, you know, New York and London. So that's my next book. Uh, so watch this space for that. And um, it will surprise no one uh, that who's read the book uh, Dead in the Water that it is, which is you know fairly cinematic. Uh, so it will surprise no one that that Kit and I are working on ways to bring it to the screen. Uh, but that's all I can say about uh, that nice. project. That's that's something that that is going to heat up over the next six to twelve months. Very cool. Uh, Matt Campbell, man, what a pleasure having you on the show. This is, the book is Dead in the Water. Um, man, I, I, I mean, the reviews on this have, are epic. You guys are blowing it up. It's so cool to hear that this might turn into, you know, something cinematic. We'll, I guess we'll cross our fingers and see if that happens. And yeah, um, really cool to have you on the show to talk about all the work that you're doing. And I appreciate your insights into the world of journalism. Um, we're always, we're learners here at the greatness machine. And so it's very, very interesting to, to learn from someone that's in it. Um, with that said, um, a couple things, first of all, um, if people want to get the book or connect, um, or follow you, what's the best way for them to do that. And then, uh, and again, where can they get the book and, um, and, um, yeah, what would be the best way to do that? Well, uh, the best way to keep up with my work, although I, I use it less than I did, but but I still do put everything I, I write on there is Twitter. Uh, like all <laughs> journalists uses Twitter. There's a headline for you. Uh, so uh, Twitter, I'm just at Matt Campbell. Very easy. Uh, 
you know, similarly, you can find me on LinkedIn if you're interested, but, but Twitter is probably the easiest. Uh, in terms of where to find the book, it is very widely available, uh, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. Uh, though, of course, if you want to support your local independent bookstore, uh, that is a very nice thing to do. Uh, doesn't matter to me, you know, I, I get uh, the financial stakes for me are the same, whether you buy it from Amazon or from, uh, you know, McNally Jackson in New York. But um, I think small bookstores are a wonderful thing and I, and I hope they will continue to exist for a long time to come. So if you can find a small local bookstore, please do. Um, and yeah, that's about it. And, and obviously, uh, you know, I work for Bloomberg, so bloomberg.com is where it all appears eventually. Awesome. So, uh, listeners go get the book dead in the water. I'm excited to read it myself. Follow Matt Campbell on Twitter. Uh, you can also go to his website, Matthew-Campbell.com and follow all things Matt. Um, and with that said, thank you so much, Matt, for being on the show. Appreciate you and, uh, looking forward to all of your new up and coming successes as well as the big success of this book dead in the water. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And listeners, listen, go out, buy the book. Um, if you love the show, share this with friends, leaders, or givers. So please give this information to anyone who you think it would help. And um, don't forget to review our show, give us a rating, all that good stuff on any podcast platform you listen to. With that said, take care. Good night. We love you. Peace. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, 
and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.